Mr. Utterson the lawyer was a man of a rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile. Cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse. Backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye. Something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in these silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone, to mortify a taste for vintages, and though he enjoyed the theater, had not crossed the doors of one for twenty years. But he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than reprove. Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs, everyone. This episode brings us another defining entry in the gothic horror genre, and many consider it to be among one of the most famous pieces of English literature. It's had such an impact on popular culture that most people already know the twist, but it's still an exciting tale to read. This is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde isn't the first story by Robert Louis Stevenson that I've read. That distinction belongs to his other most famous work, Treasure Island, which you should definitely read if you haven't yet. It was before I started this podcast, but maybe down the road I'll return to it and feature it on an episode. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Scotland on November 13th, 1850 to Thomas Stevenson, a lighthouse engineer, and his wife, Margaret Isabella. Around the age of 18, Stevenson changed the spelling of Lewis as L-E-W-I-S to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, as we see it now. Stevenson suffered from serious bronchial issues for most of his life. This often kept him away from school so he was taught by private tutors for long stretches of his education. He learned to read late in his childhood, around age seven or eight, but even before he fully learned to read, he told stories to his mother and his nurse, and he wrote many stories throughout his childhood. Stevenson studied engineering at university, but he disliked it from the start and would often avoid lectures. In April 1871, Stevenson told his father that he wished to become a writer instead of an engineer. Stevenson's mother reported that he was, quote, wonderfully resigned to his son's choice. To provide some financial security, they agreed that Stevenson should study law. In 1877, Stevenson wrote An Apology for Idlers, justifying his rejection of an established profession. Quote, 
A happy man or woman is a better thing to find than a five-pound note, he proposed. In Stevenson's 1887 poetry collection, Underwoods, he reflects on turning away from the family profession. Quote, Say not of me that weakly I declined the labor labors of my sires and fled the sea. The towers we founded and the lamps we lit to play at home with paper like a child, but rather say, in the afternoon of time, a strenuous family dusted from its hands the sand of granite, and beholding far along the sounding coast its pyramids and tall memorials catch the dying sun, smiled well content, and to this childish task around the fire addressed its evening hours. Stevenson's parents were both devout Presbyterians, but the household was not strict in its adherence to Calvinist principles. Stevenson's nurse, Alison Cunningham, was more fervently religious. Her mix of Calvinism and folk beliefs were an early source of nightmares for Stevenson, and he showed a concern for religion. Stevenson eventually rejected Christianity and declared himself an atheist. Stevenson's father was devastated. He said, quote, you have rendered my whole life a failure. Stevenson's mother said this was, quote, the heaviest affliction to befall her. After hearing their severe disappointment, Stevenson wrote to his friend Charles Baxter, quote, Oh, Lord, what a pleasant thing it is to have just damned the happiness of probably the only two people who care a damn about you in the world. Stevenson did have a change of heart later. On February 15, 1878, the 27-year-old wrote to his father, quote, Christianity is, among other things, a very wise, noble, and strange doctrine of life. You see, I speak of it as a doctrine of life and as a wisdom for this world. I have a good heart and believe in myself and my fellow men and the God who made us all. There is a fine text in the Bible, I don't know where, to the effect that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Strange as it may seem to you, everything has been, in one way or the other, bringing me nearer to what I think you would like me to be. Tis a strange world indeed, but there is a manifest God for those who care to look for him. Although he did not resume attending church in Scotland, Stevenson did teach Sunday school in Samoa, and he wrote prayers in his final years of life. Stevenson met and fell in love with Fanny Osborne, an American magazine writer. She had a husband who fought in the American Civil War, but her husband's infidelity led to their separation. She married Stevenson in May 1880. She was 40 and he was 29. They honeymooned in Napa Valley for two months. After their honeymoon, they sailed to Britain and reunited with his family. In 1885, Stevenson and author Henry James, the author of The Turn of the Screw, 
shared a mutual appreciation for each other's works and uh, got together for daily visits, becoming very close friends. Stevenson's father died in 1887, leaving his 36-year-old son free to follow the advice of his physician and head for a different climate to try to improve his health. Stevenson planned to travel to Colorado with his widowed mother and family, but they decided to spend the winter in New York instead. In December 1889, the 39-year-old Stevenson and his family arrived in the Samoan Islands. In January 1890, they built the island's first two-story house. In May 1891, they were joined by Stevenson's mother. While Stevenson's wife managed and worked the estate, Stevenson became known as the teller of tales on the islands and began collecting local stories. He would often exchange these for his own tales. Now, Stevenson disliked politics. He wrote to his friend Sidney Colvin, quote, I used to think meanly of the plumber, but how he shines besides the politician. However, he allied himself with the Samoans as other countries like Germany and the United States began encroaching. In 1894, just months before his death, Stevenson told the island chiefs, quote, There is but one way to defend Samoa. Hear it before it is too late. It is to make roads and gardens and care for your trees and sell their produce wisely. And, in one word, to occupy and use your country. If you do not occupy and use your country, others will. It will not continue to be yours or your children's if you occupy it for nothing. You and your children will, in that case, be cast out into outer darkness. Five years after Stevenson's death, the Samoan Islands were partitioned between Germany and the United States. Stevenson wrote an estimated 700,000 words during his years on Samoa. Stevenson died on December 3rd, 1894. After straining to open a bottle of wine, he asked his wife, quote, does my face look strange? And then collapsed. He died within a few hours due to a stroke at the age of 44. The Samoans insisted on surrounding his body with a watch guard during the night, and they bore him on their shoulders to a spot overlooking the sea where they buried him. Stevenson left instructions for the following to be written on his tomb. Quote, Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter home from the hill. This text, written by Stevenson himself, appears on the eastern side of his tomb. On the western side of his tomb is a passage from the Bible from Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Quote, Whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. 
And thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. Half of Stevenson's original manuscripts, including Treasure Island, are lost. His heirs sold his papers during World War I, and many of his documents were auctioned off in 1918. Stevenson formed himself in the mold of Sir Walter Scott and saw himself as a storyteller with an ability to transport his readers away from themselves and their circumstances. He was a celebrity in his own time and was admired by many other authors, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Henry James, Rudyard Kipling, Jack London, G.K. Chesterton, and later Ernest Hemingway. However, he became relegated to children's literature in the horror genre for much of the 20th century. Virginia Woolf began as an admirer of Stevenson, but became lukewarm to his works later on. She admitted his passages are, quote, lovely and brilliant, taken alone, but she felt unsatisfied by his works as a whole. Stevenson's works were gradually excluded from the canon of literature taught in schools. In the 1973 Oxford Anthology of English Literature, he went entirely unmentioned across its 2,000 pages. The Norton Anthology of English Literature excluded him from 1968 to 2000 in its uh, first through seventh editions, including him only in the 8th edition in 2006. Of late, there has been a resurgence of Stevenson's impact on literature. Roger Green, one of the Oxford Inklings alongside C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, praised his, quote, literary skill or sheer imaginative power. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization Database of Book Translations ranks Stevenson as the 26th most translated author in the world, ahead of the likes of Oscar Wilde, Edgar Allan Poe, Franz Kafka, and Ernest Hemingway. Celebrated American film critic Roger Ebert wrote in his 1996 review of Muppet Treasure Island, Quote, I was talking to a friend the other day who said he'd never met a child who liked reading Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Neither have I, I said. And he'd never met a child who liked reading Stevenson's Kidnapped. Me either, I said. My early exposure to both books was via Classics Illustrated comic books. But I did read the books later, when I was no longer a kid and I enjoyed them enormously. Same goes for Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The fact is, Stevenson is a splendid writer of stories for adults, and he should be put on the same shelf with Joseph Conrad and Jack London instead of in between Winnie the Pooh and Peter Pan. I'm going to take a short break here, but when Book Blurbs returns, I'll give my thoughts and ratings for The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and other strange tales. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back to Book Blurbs, everyone. In this episode, I'm discussing Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Other Strange Tales. I'll get into the other strange tales later on, but let's start with the main attraction, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'll tell you, no matter what your feelings end up being on this novella, it's worth reading just to read this line. Quote, if he be Mr. Hyde, he had thought, I shall be Mr. Seek. Iconic. I had to immediately reread that line just to make sure I hadn't imagined it. I wouldn't be surprised if Stevenson named his characters the way he did just so he could write this line, and I absolutely love him for it. Stevenson may have been inspired to write this novella based on the actions of a teacher friend of his who was convicted and executed for the murder of his wife in 1878. Stevenson's friend had appeared to live a normal life before a switch flipped inside him, and he poisoned his wife with opium. Stevenson was present throughout the trial, and as evidence unfolded, he found himself, like Dr. Jackal, aghast before the acts of Edward Hyde. Moreover, it was believed that the teacher had committed other murders, both in France and Britain, by poisoning his victims at supper parties with a favorite dish of toasted cheese and opium. Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in just three days, all the while sick and bedridden. According to his stepson, quote, the mere physical feat was tremendous, and instead of harming him, it roused and cheered him inexpressibly. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was published in 1886. It was initially sold as a paperback for one shilling in the UK and for one penny in the US. Within six months of its publication, close to 40,000 copies of the novella had been sold. By 1901, it was estimated to have sold over 250,000 copies in the US. Needless to say, it was an immediate hit and one of Stevenson's best-selling works. The novella follows Gabriel John Utterson, a London legal practitioner who investigates a series of strange occurrences between his old friend, Dr. Henry Jekyll, and a murderous criminal named Edward Hyde. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to read this story without knowing the twist at the end going into it. Nowadays, of course, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is so ingrained in pop culture that it's extremely difficult to be unaware of the big reveal in the final couple of chapters. Even so, this story was such a thrilling ride. Just in the very off chance that you somehow don't know the twist, I'll refrain from stating it outright, but you might want to be cautious because if you're listening closely, you can probably piece together the clues. Stevenson's realistic police-style narrative chillingly gives voice to our own fears of the violence and evil within us. 
Bear in mind that Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde before Freud's naming of the ego and the id. Stevenson's enduring classic demonstrates a remarkable understanding of the personality's inner conflicts. As such, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is frequently interpreted as an examination of the duality of human nature, usually expressed as an inner struggle between good and evil. Quote, it was on the moral side and in my own person that I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an early date, even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of such a miracle, I had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his own upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil. So here we see that Dr. Jekyll clearly believes that good and evil should be separated from each other to live life to the fullest. The novella has been noted as one of the best guidebooks of the Victorian era, because of the piercing description of the fundamental dichotomy of the 19th century, outward respectability and inward lust, as this period had a tendency for social hypocrisy. In other words, repression is inarguably a source of issues for the characters. In the Victorian England setting, there is no sexual appetite no violence, and no great expressions of emotion, at least in the public sphere. Everything is sober and dignified. The more one character's forbidden appetites are repressed, the stronger another character becomes. Quote, At that time my virtue slumbered, my evil kept an innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely, but I was still cursed with my duality of purpose, and as the first edge of my penitence wore off, the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license. Stevenson presents the character of Mr. Utterson as someone who recalls people to these strict Victorian standards they're expected to live by. Quote, Hosts love to detain the dry lawyer when the light-hearted and loose-tongued had already their foot on the threshold. They liked to sit a while in his unobtrusive company, practicing for solitude, sobering their minds 
in the man's rich silence after the expense and strain of gaiety. This, by the way, makes Mr. Utterson a good, reliable narrator for the story. He doesn't let his emotions overcome him, and he doesn't project his own opinions into the story. He's just a boring, average guy who's well-educated and cares about his friend's well-being. Appearances figure in the novella both figuratively and literally. Dr. Jekyll definitely wants to keep up a facade of respectability, even though he has a lot of unsavory tendencies. In a literal sense, the appearances of buildings in the novel reflect the characters of the inhabitants. Dr. Jackal has a comfortable and well-appointed house, but Mr. Hyde spends most of his time in the, quote, dingy, windowless structure of the doctor's laboratory. Nearly every character finds it difficult to describe the appearance of Mr. Hyde. They all conclude he is not exactly human. Quote, Mr. Hyde had numbered few familiars. Even the master of the servant maid had only seen him twice. His family could nowhere be traced. He had never been photographed, and the few who could describe him differed widely, as common observers will. Only on one point were they agreed, and that was the haunting sense of unexpressed deformity with which the fugitive impressed his beholders. Mr. Hyde is animalistic in nature. He's hairy, extraordinarily quick, unpredictable, ape-like in fury, growls like a dog, talks and hisses, snarls, and Stevenson takes every opportunity to basically label him as evil incarnate. Just look at the very first act of violence he commits in the book. Quote, Well, sir, the two ran into one another naturally enough at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing. For the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. The part of that passage that sticks out to me the most is Mr. Hyde, quote, trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. Stevenson shows that Mr. Hyde commits violence against innocent children calmly, without a second thought or any sense of remorse. Furthermore, Stevenson paints Mr. Hyde like a spawn of Satan. In fact, before readers even know Mr. Hyde's name, Stevenson compares him to Satan. Quote, There was the man in the middle, with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened, too. I could see that, but carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. Dr. Jackal is told, quote, Oh, my poor old Harry Jackal, if ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. Mr. Hyde is basically consumed by the fires of hell and takes enormous pleasure from depravity and acts of extreme violence. Listen to this. Quote, 
Instantly, the spirit of hell awoke in me and raged. With a transport of glee, I mauled the unresisting body, tasting delight from every blow. And it was not till weariness had begun to succeed that I was suddenly in the top fit of my delirium, struck through the heart by a cold thrill of terror. A mist dispersed. I saw my life to be forfeit and fled from the scene of these excesses. At once glorying and trembling, my lust of evil gratified and stimulated, my love of life screwed to the topmost peg. On the other hand, we see the flip side with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Utterson. For Dr. Jekyll, we are told, quote, whilst he had always been known for his charities, he was now no less distinguished for religion. He did good. His face seemed to open and brighten as if with an inward consciousness of service. For Mr. Utterson, we hear that he also falls in line with Victorian expectations of goodness, education, and spirituality. Quote, that evening, Mr. Utterson came home to his bachelor house in somber spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday, when this meal was over, to sit close by the fire, a volume of some dry divinity on his reading desk, until the clock of the neighboring church rang out the hour of twelve, when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. Not only does Mr. Utterson study theology, but he also keeps his schedule according to the church bells. This is in complete contrast to Mr. Hyde, illustrating the theme of religion in this story, which can also be viewed further as uh, a lens to see the duality of good versus evil, God and his faithful versus Satan and those under his influence. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is one of those stories you can read again and again and still enjoy. It's rich with themes that I haven't even touched on, such as addiction. Stevenson's writing style is engrossing and easy to understand, which is remarkable considering this story is over 130 years old, and it chucks off all of the boxes if you're looking for a good gothic read. Now let's get right into my rating. My scale from best to worst is bookshelf-worthy, buy, library, sparknotes, and pass. I'm going to give The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde the rating of bookshelf-worthy. I really enjoyed reading this novella, and it's a perfect pick for a great Halloween read. Now, I usually wrap up the episode with my rating like that, but my edition of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came with a few other works by Stevenson, so let's try to tackle them in a sort of lightning round here. The first story following Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in my book is The Body Snatcher. 
First published in 1884, Stevenson based his characters on the real-life criminals employed by Scottish surgeon Robert Knox around the time of the Burke and Hare murders in 1828. The murders were a series of 16 killings committed by William Burke and William Hare over a period of about 10 months in Scotland. Burke and Hare sold the corpses of their victims to Robert Knox for dissection at his anatomy lectures. At the time, there was a shortage in the legal supply of cadavers, which led to an increase in body snatching or removing corpses from grave sites. Scottish law required that corpses used for medical research should only come from those who had died in prison or died as suicide victims or were orphans. When a lodger in Hare's house died, he turned to his friend Burke for advice and they sold the body to Knox for a generous sum for them. A little over two months later, Hare was concerned that a lodger with a fever would deter others from staying in the house. So he and Burke murdered the lodger and sold the body to Knox. They continued their murder spree until the police became suspicious and uncovered their actions. Hare was granted immunity from prosecution for revealing more details and evidence for all of the deaths and ended up confessing to all 16 of them. Burke was hanged and his corpse was dissected. His skeleton is still on display today at a museum in Scotland. Knox was run out of town and was never able to find work at a university again. Stevenson's uh, short story follows many of the same beats as these real-life events, but with a supernatural twist at the end. I'll give this one a rating of library. It was good, but now that I know the actual historical events that inspired it, I'm more interested in the real-life true crime part of it than I am this fictionalized short story. The Bottle Imp is the next strange tale in my book. Published in 1891, this short story is about a mysterious bottle brought to the earth by the devil. The bottle contains an imp that grants its owners every wish. The catch is the owner must sell the bottle imp at a loss before he or she dies and explain to the purchaser the consequences of holding on to the bottle imp. If he or she does not, the owner of the bottle imp is doomed to rot in hell forever. Prester John purchases the bottle from the devil for millions. Over the centuries, the bottle is passed along from figures like Napoleon and Captain James Cook. When we get to our protagonist, he purchases the bottle imp from a sad, elderly Hawaiian gentleman and uses it to wish for a mansion where he can live out the rest of his days in comfort. He sells the bottle for a lower price than what he bought it for and is happy. One night, he meets a beautiful woman on the beach and falls in love. 
He begins courting her and they get engaged. However, our protagonist discovers that he has leprosy and he decides to track down the bottle imp to wish to be cured so that he can marry this woman. The good news is our protagonist is eventually able to track down the bottle imp, but the bad news is the price is now only one cent, meaning that he will not be able to resell it if he buys it and will be doomed to hell after he dies. Our protagonist is faced with a choice. Is getting cured and marrying the woman of his dreams worth giving up his eternal salvation? I was completely wrapped up in this story and thought it was so creative. The mechanics of the Faustian bargain are so interesting, and the stakes are so high. Stevenson ramps up the suspense and really makes readers care about the fate of his characters. I'm awarding this short story the rating of bookshelf worthy. It might be one of my new favorite short stories, and I hope it's being taught in schools along with the standard fare of short stories that get taught, because I think students will really be invested in this one. Following the bottle imp in my book is Markheim. Stevenson published this short story in 1885. Set in a London antique store on Christmas Day, a man named Markheim is looking for a last-minute Christmas gift for his fiancée. The antique dealer attempts a transaction with Markheim, but Markheim loses it and murders the dealer. Markheim is now free to ransack the store and find the perfect gift, but he begins to lose his nerve. Without giving too much away, I'll say the tale comes down to a battle for Markheim's soul, good versus evil, a moral drama of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Stevenson opened the door, opens the door to Markheim's inner psyche, and readers can draw some similarities to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It gave me some Edgar Allan Poe gothic horror vibes for sure. I'm reading Markheim Library. It was an interesting psychological exploration of one character's choices, but Stevenson's writing style in this one got a little too dense and long-winded for me at some points. The final work included in my copy of the book is Weir of Hermiston. This is an unfinished novel that is much different from the other included works of Stevenson. It's about Archie Weir, the upper-class son of a criminal court judge known as the Hanging Judge. Because of his romantic sensibilities and sensitivity, Archie estranges himself from his father, who is depicted as cruel and unmerciful. Archie goes to live on his family's estate property, where he meets and falls in love with Christina, a member of a family of a nearby property. The novel cuts off just as Christina and Archie are deepening their relationship. 
I haven't read it since high school, but this unfinished novel gave me Wuthering Heights vibes, and not just because some related characters have the same names. I can see where Stevenson was going with this story, especially with the introduction of Archie's scheming classmate, who moves into the estate with Archie later in the novel, just as he's falling in love with Christina. However, the Scottish dialect can be difficult to trudge through, and this type of novel is far less enjoyable for me than something like Treasure Island or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Combined with the other included works in this book, it felt out of place. I'm handing this unfinished novel the rating of Spark Notes. I feel a little guilty rating an unfinished work, but I probably wouldn't have read this at all if it was not included in my copy of the book. That's it, folks. That is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and all of the strange tales included in my edition of this book. Thank you for listening to this episode of Book Blurbs. I invite you to jump onto social media and follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at BookBlurbs19. That's BookBlurbs and the number 19. You can also send an email to BookBlurbs19 at gmail.com and you can record a voice message at www.anchor.fm slash BookBlurbs. Please do me a favor and leave a rating for book blurbs on whichever podcasting platform you're using to help grow the podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Book Blurbs. Book Blurbs.